Hey everybody, just a quick preface before we jump into this episode. When I recorded this, it was pretty emotional for me and I found that I kept turning my face away from the microphone while I was talking. And I've done everything I could in the editing process to try and even out the volume and the sound, but you're going to be able to tell those spaces where I was unable to do that. Just know I'm still learning about this process and how to do it well, and working through some of those harder topics while I'm recording is something that I will just continue to try and do better. So without further ado, here's episode two. I'm Rebecca Vega, and this is My Sober Life. Welcome back to My Sober Life, episode two. I'm so glad you're here, and I really appreciate you coming back and listening. I've discovered that if my children are home when I'm recording, this mic is so sensitive that it can hear them through the ceiling. Do you hear that? There's a lot of running around and noise making up there right now. So I'll do my best to edit out what I can. So today I wanted to tell you a story about the main event that happened that got me to start considering stopping to drink alcohol. In the fall of 2014, we got some pretty terrible news as a family. My mom had been a longtime smoker. She started smoking around age 19 in college. And at that time, in the 50s, late 50s, it wasn't known that it was going to have negative health impacts long term. It's just kind of a thing to do that people did. And so she picked it up. And then she spent the next 60 years participating in it. And for a long time, we kept thinking, oh, she's mom. She's a beast. She's just not going to be affected by this at all. She'd go to the doctor and would get a great physical and strong heart. And this looks good and that looks good. And with the exception of a lot of dental work from the tobacco, she was a pretty healthy person. But in June of 2014, she started having some shortness of breath and she started getting some testing. And it was kind of like three or four months of all of this testing. And then in October of that year on Halloween, my dad called me and my siblings, my three sisters and my brother to the house to be there when they got the news from the oncologist. And the news was that my mom had COPD and stage four small cell lung cancer. And I'm sure, in fact, I'm certain any person hearing this has been affected by cancer in some form or another. And small cell cancer is the most aggressive and it spreads like wildfire. The doctor then told us they had noticed another small spot on her shoulder blade on her back, and they wanted to do a biopsy of that. And then 
if it wasn't cancer, then they were saying we can go really aggressively with both chemo and radiation at the lungs because it hasn't spread so we can go at it. But there was only a 20% chance that that would prolong her life. And those odds weren't great for my mom. She was just not of the mind of any more poking or prodding. She didn't want it. So she said no to the biopsy and no to the radiation and chemo. And I really respected that. It's a hard place to be, to be looking your mortality right square in the face and say, okay, and not fight tooth and nail at whatever cost. I think in her parents' passing, she saw a lot of suffering and she didn't want to experience that. So that was Halloween. And then she started to slow down a little bit over the next month. But at Thanksgiving, she was still in good spirits and mostly herself. But within a few weeks, things really escalated. She couldn't sleep. She was getting up several times a night. She was very agitated and confused about where she was. We tried to do in-home care for her until the week before. It was like five days before Christmas. And she woke up and she couldn't breathe. And my dad had to call 911. And the emergency responders basically forced air back into her lungs and opened them back up and bought some more time. We probably should have lost her that day. But we got about five more months. She passed in May of 2015. Because my mom had me in her early 40s, she was 76 when she died. Almost 77. She died about a month before her birthday. And so I was in my mid-30s, and my children were young, and I felt really betrayed. It was not an easy experience. It still is not easy necessarily, but I recognize and understand how to deal with it better after five and a half years. But after she died, when I say I relied on alcohol to help me through that, I mean, at the rosary, the night before her funeral, I was drinking out of a flask in the bathroom. And not like getting wasted so I can't walk or function, but I just needed to save face in front of all of these people who had shown up for us. And I needed, I needed to not be controlled by my emotion. I needed to be able to quiet those feelings so that I could do what was expected of me. And that, over the next six months, was probably something that I relied heavily on. I wasn't drinking every day. I wasn't drinking, you know, an entire bottle of liquor or a 12-pack by myself. It wasn't like that. But, you know, that one glass of wine or those two glasses of wine at the end of a night or when the weekend popped up, just to calm me down. It was exhausting to be overcome by that level of sadness and fear and regret and confusion and questioning and all of these different emotions that come up when you lose someone close to you. I've experienced death, grief, and funerals my entire life. Because I was born so much later than my other siblings, 
My grandparents were substantially older. My aunts and uncles are substantially older. And so pretty much right out of the gate, I started going to funerals. My maternal grandfather passed away when I was six, and he was my favorite person. And I very clearly recall where I was when I found out, how it felt right afterwards, regret, because I was scared to go visit him in the hospital. And my children were the same age that I was then, losing my mom now. And so there was that piece. How do I make sure that we remember her and you have memories fortified and so you don't forget her? You know, my younger son was only four. How do we help you know how loved you were by this woman? That grief is so heavy. I'm having trouble holding it back right now. The six months preceding my mom's death, up until about a year or so more after, were very tumultuous for my family personally. A week before we found out the prognosis of her condition that Halloween, my husband lost his job. And there may be a whole other episode about that situation because it was very traumatic for all of us. The whole year after my mom died is a, is a big blur. I remember very little. And I think that happens to a lot of people after they experience this substantial grief. You know, I only took off two weeks from work afterwards. So then I have that as a distraction. And then I have my kids as a distraction. When it did start feeling a little heavy, then hmm, I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine and that's going to be my distraction. I would stay up all night and binge TV and get an hour's sleep and then go to work. And anything I could do to shut my brain off so I wouldn't have to feel sad and deal with it. So about a year and a couple months after my mom dies, I lose my job. And that was not great. As I mentioned in the intro, I have been the breadwinner for my family. After he lost his job in late 2014, we just tried to figure it out. He's a very talented photographer, and I really encouraged him to pursue that since he had the time now, but we also had two small kids. So he became the stay-at-home parent while I worked, and we had to make a lot of financial sacrifices in order to live off just my income. So when I lost my job a year and a half later, it was a pretty substantial panic. What are we going to do? My family and I went on a pre-planned vacation to visit some friends. I have no job, but we're going to go do this and we're going to have as much fun as we can. We were staying with them, so we didn't have accommodations to pay for, chipped in on food and stuff. But when we first got there, one of my friend's parents happened to also be at the house and they were there for one of the kids' birthdays and then they were going to be there for like a day and then they're flying out and we were staying for the rest of the week. This friend and I went to high school together and have known each other for over 25 years. And thus, our families knew each other. Her parents saved me numerous times. And I will tell a story about the mom later in this podcast in a way that she tried to help me maintain my dignity at a time when I was very low. 
But because of our history, we partied together a lot. And a lot of that partying happened at her house in her basement and with her parents as we got older and we all started drinking together because we could. And so a lot of my memories with them were around drinking. You know, we get there, the first thing we do is margaritas are being made and we're all hanging out drinking in the kitchen. But my friend said something that really struck me. She said, you know, happy hour for them just keeps getting earlier and earlier, and it is affecting their health. And at this time, they were in their 70s, and I started paying attention to that. I was looking at their skin, their eyes, their interactions, and for them, it was just, hey, we're on vacation, let's have a cocktail. But my friend had observed how much that had affected them in negative ways, also fully knowing there was nothing she was going to be able to do to really change their minds about it. And it just made me stop and say, is that where I want to be 30, 40 years from now? Do I want to be having those health problems because I still wanted to be drinking? So we finished the vacation. We drank the whole time. We get home. And I tell my husband, I think I'm going to quit drinking. And he's like, mm, okay, because this isn't the first time I'd said it. And I have stopped drinking several times in the past. I did not drink through my pregnancies, but even twice in high school, I gave up alcohol for Lent and I, I did it in college. I cut back way back, then jumped back in and back and forth. So I think this declaration that I was making to him, he was like, okay, well, whatever you do you. And then I didn't drink for the next month. I didn't know if I wanted to keep doing the kind of work I'd been doing. I wasn't paid any severance or any kind of notice. I was paid through that day. I had no accrued vacation. So I was in a panic about whether or not we were going to make the mortgage or be able to put food on the table. And so for the next four months, while we tried to figure it out, we're doing odd jobs for whoever would hire us. He's very handy. He let me come hang some stuff on your walls. Or I started deep cleaning my dad's house and he paid me because he wanted to help us, but he didn't want us to feel like he was pitying us or it was charity. So we worked for it. During that time, cleaning the house in which I grew up, I couldn't go a single moment without feeling my mom there. Cleaning out a cabinet and seeing jars and containers with labels on them with her handwriting. And she had such beautiful handwriting. Digging through this or that and oh my gosh, I remember baking with my mom using this exact bowl. Or can't believe she was still using this shaker for the cinnamon and sugar that she used to make. And it was very emotional. I felt like I was doing good work cleaning and it gave me a sense of purpose and something to kind of work toward. But it also was very emotionally draining because my mom was in every cabinet, every shelf, every drawer, every nook and cranny of that house is my mom. And while I was doing that, I really started to think about the pain that I was feeling, the suffering from this grief. And when I'm working, you know, I want to earn my money. I want to do a good job. But also, you know, I would have to leave and go pick up my child from school. I'm not going to be drinking while I'm doing any of those things. So I'd had no choice but to sit there and feel 
my sadness. Feel that empty hollowness in my chest. And guess what? When I sat with it and didn't numb it with alcohol, I was able to move through it. Not right away. This doesn't happen overnight. But I was able to get through it. And then I went up to the mountains with a couple of friends. My family had a place up there at the time. We went out to dinner to a Mexican restaurant that makes arguably some of the best margaritas, at least if you're from Colorado, you might think so. Maybe not the best tasting, but definitely the strongest. They only let you have three. You have a max limit and then they cut you off. So they were having margaritas and I didn't say anything. In that moment, I decided, okay, I'm going to drink because I don't want this to become a thing. If I was going to quit drinking, I wanted to do it on my terms and I didn't want it to be a big deal. If we had been out in a group and I had been driving and there was like distraction, I might have stuck to my guns and not drank that night. But we had walked. It was just the three of us. We were together all weekend. And so I just decided to drink that weekend. And I did. And that day, September 10th, 2016, was the last day I drank alcohol. And from there, it was just kind of a day by day, week by week, month by month. I said no to some stuff so that I wouldn't be tempted. I also would just make excuses or I would always have my water bottle in my hand or, you know, someone would say, hey, you want a drink? No, I'm good right now. Or, oh, I'll get one later. I'm on antibiotics right now. People new to sobriety, this is like a classic new to sobriety strategy. You don't want to make a big deal out of it because what happens, especially if it's someone like me in my situation where it was a choice and it wasn't forced upon me, people don't get it. They do not understand why you would stop if you didn't have to. And trying to explain that to someone while you're still navigating the early months of sobriety is something I didn't want to do. I did not want to have that conversation. So my mom's passing indirectly led me to my sobriety. When I was cleaning that house, surrounded by her seven hours a day with no easy button to push and say, I'm not going to feel this right now. I don't want to feel this right now. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about her. I don't want any of this. I didn't have that. So then I started thinking, okay, if I stop drinking, then I'm going to be forced into feeling this. And I wanted to see if I could do it. Could I survive my grief? I wanted to see if I could do it and find out who I actually was. All of that posturing and pretending that I did while I was drinking, do I really want to be that person? Maybe that person is me. Maybe that already exists inside of me, but I've always been too afraid to bring it out. What is it about the drinking that makes me feel safe? to say that thing or do that thing. If I can't say or do that thing sober, is it really true? So I stopped drinking and that's when I really started to learn about me. Thank you so much for listening. Send me your questions and stories at mysoberlifepodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe, wash your hands, and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.